Hi folks, I'm Mark Fallows and this is the Impossible Network podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast player. And please leave a rating and a review because it helps more people find us. If you want to find out more of what we get up to, or suggest who we interview next, follow us on Instagram at The Impossible Network, or visit theimpossiblenetwork.com. Okay, let's get started. The nature of reality is open, fluid, and if you were to dig into quantum physics or Buddhist philosophy or contemplative philosophy, you would probably arrive at the realization that everything is possible. And understanding the role of the mind and the power of the mind will help you realize that everything is possible. So look inside and look into your mind first and foremost before you believe somebody else's jargon. Born in Iran, raised in Germany, a social anthropologist, an executive coach, organizational trainer, and international speaker, founder of contemplative science-focused neural beings, and long-term New York resident, is this week's guest, Anahita Moghadan. In this episode, Ananita tells the story of her troubled, anger-fueled and rebellious early years, the impact of her parents and upbringing on her struggles with sexual identity, purpose and life direction. Anahita discusses the role and transformative power of dance in her growth and how a trip to India transformed her life and set her on her Buddhist spiritual path. She explains how a serendipitous flight cancellation resulted in her coming face-to-face with the Dalai Lama on a rebook flight. We also discuss the happy accidents, chance encounters that have defined her spiritual path in New York. She explains how her rigorous and experiential contemplative science methodology blends Eastern practices and wisdom with the Western fields of psychology, philosophy, neuroscience and biology. We discuss the damaging fragmentation of technology on our attention, on our relationships and the impact on communities and the practices we can all adopt to lead more balanced, positive lives. She shares her perspective on the power of femininity in society and culture, and ideas on new approaches to education. I hope you're inspired by this episode of Powerful Insights into Human Experience, and her commitment to self-inquiry with Anahita Mokhadan. Welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And I think I should say, if I got my memory taking me back to when I was a teenager in Tehran, um, Salam Chetori. Wow. Salam, Chatori, Khubi. Don't push me any further. Okay. You might get a thank you at the end. Wow, merci. Okay. <laughs> okay then. So thanks for making the time in the amazing apartment in Soho, which, oh, is, fant- which is fantastic. Thank you. Anahita, before we get into your extraordinary life and what you're doing now with neural beings, mm-hmm. I'd like to understand about your childhood, your upbringing, mm-hmm. um, the impact that your parental support had um, on the journey you've taken. Okay, well, I was born. Um, I was born in Tehran after the Islamic Revolution, during the Iran-Iraq War. So already, I was born into, you know, an atmosphere of turmoil and kind of deep suffering. I think people, you know, there had been, you know, so thousands, mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of people that had been killed during the revolution and then in the process of dying during the war. So Iran was a very dark place at that time. Let me see if my memory serves me right. So the Iran-Iraq war was probably uh, between 84 and 87, was it? I, I think earlier. I think, earlier it was was around, I think it was around 80. 80, 80 yeah. So 88. 80, 80, 80. Yeah, because yeah, of course it yeah. did, because it went right on just before the uh, invasion, the yes. first Gulf War. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I was born 82. Um, I, you know, I have vague memories of hearing the alarms 
and which were you know signifying that there's going to be bombings yeah. and air air bombings and then which part we of Tehran were you in in the north, north so north, around north. the mountainous area okay lovely yeah yeah, yeah you remember well yeah i mean we lived just off um a street called takajamshid oh Jamshid. okay yeah, wow i think that was in the northern part okay um yeah i remember going out and going into the mountains for picnics oh in, yes in very hot summer days wow. so yeah that's so cool. Anyway, so I interjected. Yes, yeah, so, so you know we would go hide under, hide in these bunkers, and uh, wait until you know we were safe enough to come back out. And then at some point, you know, my parents took us, took me, and uh, some other family members on a road trip to you know different areas of Iran where we were safe. And you know, I have, ve- I have vague memories of these kinds of experiences and feeling somewhat confused, even though I was relatively small. But anyway, coming back to parents and caregivers and how that impacted me, I mean, one thing I can say is I, you know, I definitely had very loving parents and I still have my mom Mm -hmm. and very well-intended, very loving, you know, were always supportive and always protective and did their best. But I would say like any human, my parents too had their shortcomings and their you know, their, their issues that they were dealing with, not only environmental, meaning my father, you know, lost a lot of what he had, had created and built Mm. during the revolution and had to sort of restart again. What was his career? He was an international lawyer. Mm. Yeah. And my mom was uh, working in copyright law and that's where they met. So all of that changed, you know, the ministry of culture where they actually were working for um, all of that was you know radically transformed it must have been a very difficult decision for them being professionals to make a decision should you stay or should they stay or should they go at yeah, that time absolutely. What, what made them stay well we left eventually so we left shortly after I was born but um, I think initially they were hoping for living conditions to improve mm-hmm. but I don't think they did so eventually my dad um, applied for a position in Germany and was given the position, so he brought us all over to Germany. So I grew up in Hamburg. So there was no issue under the the regime at the time, leaving and going to work? No, I think it was okay. Yeah, yeah, I think it was okay for him. I mean, I'm sure there are many other families that had, you know, ties with the Shah's regime that didn't have it so easy, that had to flee and use much more drastic measures to Mm. find alternative ways of living. But... um, or safer ways of living or surviving. <laughs> but no, in, in my family's case, I think it was pretty easy to actually get out. Not to mention that, you know, my father did end up in prison uh-huh. a few times. In you know? Iran? Yeah, right after the revolution once, and then a few years later as well. For so, what? For... Just, you know, accusations, as they, you know, they were accusing everybody of having ties with the Shah. Mm-hmm. So again, he was one of those people who, you know, was a successful man. And he created a, some measure of wealth and stability, and they didn't, they had questions, you know, and they wanted their portion of it, I suppose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, as is the case in all extreme re- regime changes. What about your siblings? So I have a younger brother. He's five years younger than me. And uh, he was born also, yeah, during the war. And then, you know, around the time he was born, we moved to Germany. Talk to me a little bit about the war. There's not many people you meet today unless uh, from countries that have actually experienced growing up in wartime. Now, obviously, there's civil strife. There's in situations, like obviously, right now, people coming from Syria can talk about that. But this is a full-on country versus country war, a traditional war, battlefields, air raids, and that type of thing. What do you think the impact was at mm. the time and has been on your your growth and your development? Mm. Well, it's I, I'm not consciously aware of it mm. because I was very young 
So, I mean, even the remembering the sound of the sirens, mm -hmm. uh, which I referred to as alarm earlier, but they were sirens. <laughs> even if I recall the, the sound of the sirens and how they would just suddenly go off, and suddenly I would see everybody jump up and any time grab of day. me any time of day, and we would you know suddenly be ushered into this bunker. Honestly, I don't. I don't uh, remember feeling any necessarily any fear mm. or panic unless all of that was recorded into my psyche at a mm. subconscious level. I don't have any trauma around sirens currently, but I definitely have my share of <laughs> developmental trauma that I took away. I don't know if it's from the war or other things, but I have my I have my guesses. Okay. Yeah, so happy to talk about them too. <laughs> yeah, well let's let's go on. So you uh, yeah. you went to Germany? So I grew up in Germany, and you know, as I mentioned, my father was Which in city? Hamburg oh, in nice the north. Okay. Yeah, so just um, you know, on the on yeah. the coast, the northern nice sea. Yeah, beautiful yeah. city. So my father was a successful man, very accomplished, very educated, had a PhD in law, and was a philosopher. And a you know, he was he thought outside the box, and he challenged you know the very traditional Iranian way of looking at things, including the religion. So you know, he was. Uh, gone a lot. He was significantly older than my mother. So he, you know, forming a traditional relationship or like a normal quote unquote relationship with my father was not the was didn't really happen. He was an older man, a very respectable authoritarian figure, very kind, very protective, never did anything harmful to us ever. He just yelled at me once for burning the carpet. <laughs> but Probably, that's not bad reason actually, <laughs> if you're going to shout. <laughs> But otherwise, you know, very kind, but still, I wasn't able to form the typical kind of father-daughter bond um, mm. or play with him or roll around with him in the grass, nor did my, my brother, who was five years younger, so there was even more of an age gap. And so I think also growing up in Germany in the early 90s or late 80s, early 90s, you still felt an air of hostility towards foreigners. We were Iranians. You know, we were messy, we would go to restaurants, my brother would throw his french fries around, I was, you know, jumping up and down, singing and dancing. You know, my mom was enjoying it. She was delighted that her kids were, you know, mm -hmm. healthy and happy. But, you know, we would get, like, the occasional table next to us, like, shaking their heads in disapproval. And then I would record that. I would suddenly, after several, you know, occasions of getting these looks and these kinds of responses, I would start to think, maybe something's wrong with us. Uh -huh. Maybe you were not normal, or maybe we're bad or something. And I think that definitely left an imprint. What age were you? Probably around eight. Something between six and 12 is the time I remember feeling a little bit out of place in Germany as a foreigner, young foreigner. But learning German. But learning German, German, going to an international school, so speaking English in school, German outside with friends, and Farsi at home with mm -hmm. my family. Right, so. so they just continued that yes. sort of cultural connection. Exactly. After, after international school, I would put on my little hijab uh -huh. with my little backpack and I would go and read and write Farsi and I was really good at it apparently until uh -huh. sixth grade and then what? I got, then and you dropped, dropped the ball it. yeah <laughs> and but now it's obviously it's still yeah I'm and, fluent I have a weird German accent and I can read and write. <laughs> oh really oh, so yeah. when you're speaking <laughs> it's really strange <laughs> and I can read and write but sixth grade level so with your mother, was she instilling certain values in you as you were growing up? Yeah, so coming back to the developmental, the imprints, mm -hmm. um, you know, so I had a father who was absent and I had a mother who was somewhat overwhelmed, I think, just living in Germany, dealing with a new culture, settling in, you know, totally uprooted, alone. Mm -hmm. My but, father but working as well? No, she wasn't working. She oh, was just right. raising me and my brother at that time. 
And, you know, she was somebody who, having grown up in Iran in the 60s and 70s, you know, her own father didn't allow her to necessarily pursue her interests. Even with education, she had to fight to go to university. He wouldn't want to let her. She was a volleyball professional. I mean, she played for the Iranian national team for a while. He wouldn't really want her to play. So she grew up with, a, you know, in a whole different set of circumstances and had to sacrifice a lot. So I think a lot of her you know, unlived and unfulfilled desires were transferred over to me and I was expected to, you know, become this stellar child. And so I could feel that pressure to some extent, even though she was incredibly loving and supportive, but she had very high bars for myself and my brother. Very high Academically bar. or sport? At every level. Yeah? At were every you doing sport at school? Sports, yeah, academic, social, cultural, behavioral, all of that. And so I started to become a very angry child. You know, given the fact that my father was was, was away, uh, living in Germany, getting bullied every now and then. And, you know, I also had on some unfortunate incidents of, you know, moderate sexual harassment to, mm -hmm. to be very open and transparent with you. You know, I had situations where I really was like, I lost my trust in mm -hmm. some really close male family friends who kind of overcrossed their boundaries with me as a young girl. So I started to basically rebel against my female anatomy, my female body, which was around the age of 12 was starting to take shape. Wow. I rebelled and against my culture, which I couldn't relate to and I was confused about being in Germany. I started to rebel against my the, the material uh, life that my parents had built for themselves so the, the wealth and the affluence and the high society dinner parties and the you know dinners at diplomats homes and whatnot and I shaved my head and I dyed my eyebrows pink oh, and wow. I started to wear <laughs> Doc Martens mm -hmm. and boys t-shirts and went really angry this anger when you're saying you're focusing on your feminine self was it based on your sexuality or your uh, sexual identity Yes, for sure, because the incidents of sexual harassment, I concluded that the reason why I was harassed was because I had a female body. Mm -hmm. So I hated my female body. I took it out at that. That was the cause or the source of my unhappiness mm -hmm. and my suffering. But then I also, you know, lost trust and became very angry at the world outside me. And I also, you know, honestly, I never really felt seen as a child. I think my parents were struggling to keep things afloat and to make it. And, you know, one thing, my father was a very accomplished and influential man in Iran. Suddenly he comes to Germany and he's nobody. So his entire, you know, focus was to reestablish himself. And he did. And we ended up living on the, on the street where the wealthiest families in Hamburg lived. And we went to the best school in Hamburg and one of the best schools in Germany. So he did work hard, but he neglected, he wasn't able to be there for us. Mm -hmm. So I felt invisible growing up, really. And that's really my biggest imprint that I was referring to. I, a sense of being unseen. But this rebellion against your gender identity or your, your feminine identity, wasn't that in a way exacerbating the invisibility Definitely to other was. people as well, rather than trying to address the yeah. feeling? Absolutely no. I had no, I had no means to address it nor to, uh, to understand what was really happening. Mm -hmm. All I could do is just want to make myself more invisible. So I actually ended up spending, you know, I would come home from school and I would just lock myself in my room and put on, you know, grunge music or death metal. And I would mm -hmm. just like sit there and, you know, yell at the top of my lungs. And eventually I became even more angry where I started to break things. And then there was a period where I actually started to cut myself. Wow. And I really took it out on myself. So at that point when you're self-harming, 
presumably your mother must have had some intervention to address. To be honest with you, you know, I no one ever talked to me about it. It was never brought up. Um, I don't know to this day whether they just didn't see it or whether there was just such a level of discomfort around the topic that they didn't want to address it. But I was, I had nobody to talk to about it actually. What happened? What inter- intervention occurred that? took you on a different path yeah where I now people pay me to help them heal (laughs) it's kind of kind of a miracle to be honest but in a way that's that's interesting because you've experienced extreme pain and inner suffering yes I assume that that you're that drives your level of empathy for sure and ability to identify with what they're going through which probably makes you exceptionally effective in the role that you're playing yeah I would hope so yeah yeah. But what happened then? Where did what happened to the? When did the hair start growing out? The pink eyebrows disappear. <laughs> well, you know, hormones kicked in around the age of fifteen, sixteen, and then uh, you know, someone. And then the Spice Girls. Came <laughs> <on>. <laughs> Spice Girls came on, and someone took me to a salsa club, and ah, then my life changed. Okay. So then I discovered, wow, salsa, and I actually discovered that I'm a good dancer. So dance became my refuge. Dance, I would go, you know, to salsa clubs twice, three times a week, and I would just dance it all out of my body and mind. Dance plays a role in anger as well. I mean, if I grew up going to a lot of punk rock concerts uh-huh. in Scotland. Yes. And there's, okay, it's maybe not the dancing you're talking about, <laughs> but it's aggressive. And banging. And it's, yeah, yeah and it's oh. uh, pogoing and, For sure. you know, all manner of, yes. of abhorrent behaviors. <laughs> yeah. But it's dance. Well, I did, so I was part of that abhorrent. Yeah, yeah exactly. I so. went to so many rock concerts and I mean, I was, first of all, I was a Metallica fanatic. I went to Marilyn Manson concerts. I went to so many strange I've, underground. I've got, this, I've got this picture of you in my head. Oh, I, yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I see where you're yeah. coming from. And so you were dancing there. So this dance just evolved. It was a different type of dance that Yes, it was a dance that actually reconnected me to my body and to my femininity. So my hair grew up and I started to wear flowery dresses. <laughs> and I started to, I you know, your brother must be going, hang on a second, what's going my on here? My poor brother, even to this day, he's like my, <laughs> he just, he's so fascinated by me. <laughs> so what, what was it about the dance that made it so cathartic? Transcending my narrative. Uh-huh. Transcending heavy identification with my past, with myself as a female, with myself as Persian, with myself as German, all of that. When, when you dance and you really dance, you just go beyond t- typical, you know, self-ruminating habits of the mind. I'm still intrigued though, there's so many people who grow up in that adolescence with issues and challenges similar to what you were describing, but don't discover mm-hmm. transcendence through dance. What is it you think that specifically to yourself or the situation or the person that introduced you, was there some factor that you can assign as being the, the mm. reason why? Well, I want to also be clear that dance wasn't the end all for me. So after the period of dancing, when I went to London to study as an 18 year old, I dipped again. Mm-hmm. And that time I got into parties, nightlife and drugs. Mm-hmm. So my, what year was that? That was 2001. I moved to London and I did my undergraduates, but really was high and dancing in the gay clubs of mm-hmm. London the whole time. And specifically gay clubs because I felt safe and I could just, you know, show up in a tiny top yeah. and dance all night with gay men who didn't care to harass me, <laughs> to be honest. So Nevertheless, I did get a little bit addicted to certain substances and I did end up just spending all of my time up all night in these clubs. So I dipped again. So if you're looking for the hook that really took me out to this day, it was my spiritual practice. Okay. So I don't know if you want to go that far into the future. You want to... At this point, you, <laughs> you were doing marketing and advertising was, in London. So that I might was. have had something to do with the substance abuse uh, yeah. and <laughs> escaping from the reality. Maybe exactly. something in you going, 
am I really going down this path? Yeah. Is this where I'm going? But that's exactly what was happening in my mind. There must have been some sort of inner dialogue. Oh, for sure. I'm like, why did I do? And the reason I did it is because I was supposed to know what I want to do with my life at 17. And the and the expectation of your mother. And yes, of course, my Mm -hmm. mother wanted me to do something, you know, safe, and Mm -hmm. and so did my father. Both of them wanted me to do something that you know guarantees, uh, you know, dignified life. I did want to ask what you were like at school. Were you a little re- a little rebel, or did you fit in, and were you well behaved? No, I was not. I didn't fit in. Mm. I was definitely weird. I'm not saying not even strange. I was weird, mm. but I wasn't an outcast. I was popular. I think I was intriguing to people. Um, I was pretty confident in what I was doing, despite the fact that I would go home and crumble in my mm. room and break things. I cut myself with CDs. Can you imagine? Uh, because yeah. you would have to do it much harder broken cds i would break Break my cds and then cut myself with cds yeah like that so but i would show up at school and i was popular and people were fascinated by me but i was not i was not the popular popular i was the weird popular Mm -hmm. um i was social what was that netflix series 13 reasons why (laughs) okay (laughs) you haven't seen that no No? okay right Okay. Maybe you should watch it. Yeah, this already <laughs> sounds funny. Okay, so we, that was school. Well, I'll drop that in earlier. Right, so you're in London. You were... But I want to say one more thing about being in school. I yeah, felt sure. like I was in a bubble. Uh-huh. I felt like I was there, but I never really felt like all the other children. And I don't know what that was, um, you know, what caused that experience. Mm-hmm. Subjectively, I went to school and I had my friends, but I always looked at the other kids and I thought, they there's something really healthy about them. The ones that I, you know, I would go home to their houses in the evenings or after school and they had like loving families and, you know, they, they were Western people who lived like good integrated Western lives. But like my home, my life, it was so strange and messy and, you know, complex. So I always felt really off, mm. always felt alienated, actually. That was my continuous experience. And to a certain extent, you were an alien anyway. I in was an, an unusual alien. environment. Yeah. How did your Iranian identity either survive or thrive or did you have any longing to go back to Iran? So we would go every year for the summer holidays. So Mm. every year, four months of the year, we were in Iran for the summers. So I would become really, you know, rooted there. I would become so attached to my grandmother and to my friends. And then off we went again back to Europe. Mm. So there was was so confusing. Yeah. We're trying to sort of understand this a little bit more about the impact of ambiguity in someone's upbringing, that it conditions you to embrace change and uncertainty mm-hmm. in the world that we're living in today, which is incredibly ambiguous and, right. and fast moving. And people that have very conditioned, safe, secure, stable environments, maybe feel a little bit more challenged in today's world mm-hmm. and threatened. And therefore you did have an incredibly ambiguous and oh, unpredictable mm-hmm. Um, unconventional upbringing because you must have been not only as you said you were viewed as an alien in a in a strange land in Germany you must have been seen sure, as a yes. slightly a bit of an alien oh, yeah, coming back Iran. to Iran with yeah. your shaved head and your pink oh, eyebrows yeah. yeah even without it I was yeah. the, the child the, the foreigner mm-hmm. in Iran as well yeah. of course right so we've covered school back in London in the early 2000s mm-hmm. I must have walked past you at some point <laughs> I'm convinced because I was living in London at the time yeah it was just about the time I got actually got married in 2002 so those early... I came the, to your wedding. Oh, was that you? Damn, you were, the, yeah, you were the one that everyone was going, who's the girl dancing like a dervish over there? That's, <laughs> That's funny. it. Where did you live in London? I lived all over London, but uh, towards the end, I was in Hampstead, which I loved. 
so yeah, this period in London, a transformational time for you. Mm -hmm. So talk, me, talk to me about that. Yeah, so I think I hit rock bottom at that time. You know, there was a point where I was just, you know, I didn't know what sleep was. I, did, I was broke, you know, I spent all my money buying drugs and just sort of, yeah, being frivolous. And, you know, frivolous meaning finance, like with careless about my spending. Um, you know, I think the one thing I can say, having been raised Persian, I had a certain level of um, certain upbringing around my sexuality and my body that like a certain dignified responsibility mm -hmm. in regards to that. So I was I'm glad that I had that established in me from my culture, mm -hmm. which actually, you know, the negative side of that is that there was a lot of shame around sexuality. It was almost, you know, no one at first of all, no one talked to me about sexuality. Second of all, it was seen as a bad thing. It's the bad thing, the dirty thing. Mm -hmm. So dirty girls have sex. <laughs> so, so thank God I had that to at least, you know, curb my curb that kind of behavior. But regardless, I hit rock bottom, and there was a point where I was just so distraught, and that continuous drug taking did lead me to a state of depression and dullness and anxiety. But you weren't an addict. I wasn't an addict, but I was a party girl. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I was up to. Yeah. But I did it every weekend. So I guess you know. I don't know if that makes me an addict, but I was certainly well, you were, not you were well. Preparing a very, very good path to a, a stellar career in advertising <laughs> because that's, you know, just looking back at it. That's what you do. Yeah. Okay. So you've always got that as a fallback if, um, if therapy goes down. Drugs and advertising yeah. career. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so attractive. Um, yeah, and then around that time, my father got a, a stroke. So that was sort of a wake-up call. But you weren't there at the time. I wasn't there, and we flew into Iran, and we spent a few months with him there. And I gradually saw him deteriorating. He was already in his 80s. Nevertheless, I would go from sitting next to my father, who was like, you know, throwing up blood, to then going to the next big party in Tehran and taking drugs there. So I was still torn between my old habit and this new reality, emerging reality of my father, like dying in front of me. So I basically witnessed him over the next three, four months that we were in Iran, like turning into nothing. And then we had to go back. Um, I was, uh, I had to continue my university and then he passed away. And that really was the beginning of the end of that phase for mm -hmm. me of like self-destruction. And it was the beginning also of my spiritual awakening because my father really imbued in me the spiritual, the, let's say, questioning reality, questioning the nature of things, the phenomenal world. Is this all there is? Is everything that we see and touch and smell and hear, is this it or is there more? But that presumably didn't come from Shia theology. No, not no. from, I can, I mean, I'm sure that Islam has beautiful teachings, yeah. um, especially in Sufism. Uh -huh. I know for a fact that there are so many beautiful teachings there that I have personally experienced and learned about. But uh, no, my father's influence was coming from the Eastern philosophies, the contemplative traditions of Hinduism, Jainism, and Buddhism. So he was a curious individual. Very curious. In fact, if you went to our home in Iran in the 80s and 90s, we had Buddhas everywhere. So imagine uh, the, the environment of the Islamic Revolution having happened, and our home was like a, you know, a Buddha fest. It wouldn't have gone down too well with the thought police. Not at all, no. <laughs> or the re Revolutionary Guard. <laughs> yeah, not to mention my dad's whiskey collection. <laughs> ah, right. Ah, now you're talking. Yes. <laughs> so so yeah. yeah, so out of the loss of your father, you began to grow. Yes, I began to um, grow and question. Mm -hmm. And he actually, one of the last things he told me was, go to India, go. Because I, had, I was playing, flirting with the idea of going to India. He said, go, go and seek. He told me to read Siddhartha by Hermann Hesse. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those, those, those imprints were... Why do you think he left it so late to tell you this? 
Because he must have been observing the pain and the suffering you he were going was. through throughout. Yeah. But he waited. He waited specifically in regards to India, but actually prior, the years prior to his death, he was already, he was giving me Carlos Castaneda. He was giving me, um, what else? He was talking to me about the Dalai Lama, who is now my, my, my teacher for many years. And he was, my father is the first person from whom I heard the name Dalai Lama, actually. Mm -hmm. He said he really respected him and had a lot of admiration for him as a, as a man but also as a religious and yeah religious figure and also as a philosopher as a scholar he really respected him so those seeds were planted at an early age can you go into the specifics of how that journey then took on a completely different direction and what were the defining moments during the transformation from london presumably then to new york mm -hmm. so i went off on my trip to india and i went for 3 months so I went there, I went to this teacher training, I came out, and from that day, I never took drugs ever again. I have not eaten any animal other than fish. So I came out 22 from one month of deep, immersive practice in yoga, in meditation, in philosophy, in contemplation, in community, in devotion. I came out and my life 180 degrees flipped. Wow. Where was this? This was in the south of India, in Kerala. In Kerala. Oh, I went to the Shivananda Ashram. So that time in, in that place, a lot of people go to retreats even for that month, um, but it doesn't transform their lives so, in such a spectacular way. What do you think it was that led to that complete and utter transformation? Uh, wow, it's a good question. With me, I think it was so radically different from everything I had known and mm. everything I had experienced. It was a moment of, re it was solace, it was relief. Suddenly I was in this beautiful environment with people who were talking to me about positive, positive things. Mm -hmm. The whole experience of suffering and misery and complexity and alienation, it was almost like it just was, it faded out. Can I ask a question? If you, when you talked about the, the sexual abuse when you were younger, mm -hmm. and that was the beginnings of you rebelling and encountering anger, mm -hmm. Could it be that, that that experience and this of the alienation of being away from your country and then being abused and threatened created a, an emptiness inside you? That you, all the, the spirit, the emotions and the, the real you, you were either crushing it or had let it go yes. to some other space. Totally. And all you were was this empty vessel yes. that was then being filled with, or the real you was being released from some place that Absolutely. had been hidden yeah um, suppressed suddenly it had mm. space to uh, emerge mm. i didn't even mention to you that i was thrown into prison in iran at the age of 13. <laughs> not to mention that yes that was a massive trauma and i it, just because i went to a birthday party oh my parents with, sent me to the birthday your party. well no at that point i was already you know i already had hair i was yeah. kind of looking cute and my parents said go to the birthday party of our friend's son it's bad if you don't they invited you so they dropped me off and two hours later we have people with machine guns who like came and arrested us and put us in prison for three days and they were threatening to lash us for having a party for going to a birthday party but there was alcohol involved uh. girls and boys mixed so the boys got lashed 80 times <gasps> No. And the girls were spared because I had a German passport and they weren't, they didn't. And I was 13, I would have died mm. under the, that yeah. kind of physical torture. Uh, so they spared me and they spared the rest of the girls. But three days I came out there and I became a chain smoker. For oh. like two, three days I didn't go out. I was just smoking my father's cigarettes the whole day and the whole night. So anyway, that's something I forgot oh, to yeah. tell you about. <laughs> How old were the boys who were lashed? Also around 13, 14, 15. And they survived? Yeah. 
was horrific. I mean, survived, yes, but Can you know, you the, damage, the damage to them. For sure, that's oh a lifetime goodness. of damage. Are you in touch with any of them? Yeah, you know, they live on. Mm -hmm. They still party. Yeah. They still did live their lives, but I'm sure underneath there's a lot of broken pieces. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Okay, so back to releasing Siva, and emerging. Shivananda, Shiv yeah. Shivananda. So yeah, you're very right with that. So what was, you know, what was previously not seen, what didn't have mm -hmm. an opportunity to really come forth. Maybe during the salsa period, it was a bit, it came out a bit, but really it started to show up. And I got in contact with something in me that is, that honestly was so beautiful. And it, the beauty was reflected in how other people responded to me. I was almost at that, you know, in ashram, I remember being this light beacon of light, this ball of happiness and I was I came to life and it's not I'm not ascribing it to the religion per se it was just the experience of being in a safe environment that allowed me to get in touch with some of the more sort of let's say natural qualities that were in me that didn't have the time to come out or opportunity mm -hmm. to come out it made me so happy where did you go after you returned? I went back to London. I did my master's in social anthropology at SOAS in London. School and you, of changed, you, changed, you made that decision to do social anthropology because of the course or you, had you already decided? Well, I had at that point I'd become so interested and fascinated in different cultures mm. and traditions and, and human behavior. Because of my interest in philosophy and spirituality, I thought, wow, like studying shamanic traditions, shamanic cultures around the world, so that, you know, going deeper and under, understanding, you know, Middle Eastern culture and society. I wrote a paper on an essay on the whirling dervishes <laughs> and the state of trance that they invoke and go into. So I said, you know what, let me give myself one other chance to really become a student and fulfill my obligation <laughs> and like show up. So and I did, did, and it was marvelous, uh -huh. fantastic. That could have taken you down any number of career paths, mm -hmm. like a spy. For well, you could you could have done that. You could have also continued into advertising. I mean, there's a lot of very <laughs> successful planners in advertising that have got backgrounds in social anthropology, uh, yeah? okay. and you could have gone down route, got into psychotherapy as well, right. which is probably closer to the direction you went. But what was it that made you look at therapy and what I think what you call your uh, is contemplative science. Yeah, so I work term. as a coach, exactly. Well, what made me go there? Well, I had a job in media after the, the SOAS, the master's, and, and during this media job, basically I was uh, representing Forbes, the Washington Post and the Times of London, mm. and I was in my early mid-20s, no, 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 mid-20s, sorry. And they sent me and a couple of other young people to, um, you know, countries with emerging markets. And we were basically stationed there, like three of three young, fun, loving people, uh, like, let's say, in Botswana, for example. And we were, um, you know, assigned the task of interviewing senior political leaders, such as the ministers, mm -hmm. the presidents of the countries, the top CEOs of the top companies in the main industries of the country. So there I was sitting suddenly in my like 25th, 26th year, sitting in the you know, room with a Ministry of Culture, Ministry of Tourism, Ministry of Mining and Agriculture, whatever you want to call it, and interviewing them. And then after the interviews, I would sort of put aside my pen and paper and I would say, well, what is it like to be you? Tell me about your life and, you know, what are you reading at the moment? And then they would start to open up and, and you know, I had the, one of the ministers in Africa ran off and brought me, you know, some of the books he was reading and his journal and started to tell me about his spiritual ideas and beliefs. So that really left another imprint, a positive imprint on my mind. 
where I thought to myself, well, this is interesting. If I can unlock these people, if I can bring out something beautiful and this humanity out of these people, maybe there's something to this. Mm -hmm. All I knew was I had to go to New York. You know, I was inspired by my rock and roll heroes and mm -hmm. idols and the stories of that, their lives. That were? Well, Patti Smith was probably yeah. my number one, and then Bob Dylan, and then there were a couple of the beat poets yeah. that, you know, came Ginsburg. in. Great Ginsburg yeah. and Jack Ryan, all the ones that graced the streets of New York, and then not to mention, like, the whole scene at CBGB's mm -hmm. and the punk rock. So I was like, well, New York seems to be the place where this thing in me, this, this, this thing that hasn't been seen, that no one has ever validated, that I've been dying to bring out but haven't been able to really identify, maybe I can let it out. Maybe mm -hmm. some other people can resonate with it for once. So I came. I quit my job which was paying well, which had me traveling the world and dining and whining with ministers and heads of state and staying at five-star hotels in Jakarta and Bali and whatever, um, to coming to New York and sleeping on sofas and couches and meeting people in cafes and just sort of hoping that they would offer me their couch and figuring it out. Oh, you came, you didn't know anyone. I didn't know, I, know, I knew one person, I stayed at his place on his couch for two days, two nights, mm -hmm. and then after that I was on my own. Wow. Yeah. Brave. What yeah. did your mother think of that? My mother. She oh must have God. been pulling her hair out. She was pulling her <laughs> Shaving hair. Shaving her head. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, as much as she was, she's been, my, my mother is the reason why I have everything I have and I am everything I am. Mm -hmm. She's been my toughest, toughest challenger and my greatest teacher and my role model for compassion. You came to New York and uh, I'm assuming serendipity has played a part somewhere along your journey. Yeah. Could you like all the time? You mean? <laughs> well, where where would you say that in in its most notable sense you've either had some form of unusual encounter, happy accident, or um, uh, just connection with someone that you would not have? But it's taking on a slightly different direction. Uh, so basically, even just taking the New York situation, I decided that I wanted to move to New York when I was in Dubai, and around that time. I look into my bank account and I had 10,000 euros deposited into my bank account from an unknown beneficiary in Calcutta, from the National Bank of Calcutta. And I thought, well, what, what is this? And I asked a couple of people what I should do, you know, some friends who were lawyers and bankers, and they said, you know, well, just leave it, don't touch it, they're going to take it back. Mm -hmm. Eventually, around five, six months passed, I didn't touch still the there. money and it was still there. So then I found out that it's legally mine. I need no idea where it came from. No idea. Just the National Bank of Calcutta. Oh my goodness! So I had and 10, you hadn't been to Calcutta. I hadn't been there. No. That's incredible. So, yeah. So then I took the money and I went to New York. It was almost like I got sponsored to go to New York. That's extraordinary. Yeah. And to this day, you still have no, <laughs> no idea where this came from. I don't from. know. I think it was somebody accidentally transferred money into my account. Oh wow! But it's what enabled me to come yeah. here. Oh, that is an amazing story. Mm -hmm. So I got okay. funded. Um, what was it that then sparked your imagination and your hunger and desire to move into coaching and continue to obviously develop your interest in the spiritual inquiry mm -hmm. into Buddhism and mm -hmm. the, the groundwork that your father did with mm -hmm. you? Well, it was, uh, I would say it was still that inner suffering. It was that inner burning. I came here and all of a sudden I'm here and, it, you know, people are creative and fun and there's so much, you know, it's just a different atmosphere. Everything feels open and possible. Mm. It's not like, it didn't feel restricting like it did in Germany where you were, you were expected to be a certain way. Here, everybody was just however they wanted to be. Yet, I still had this inner sense of burning all the time. I didn't quite know what it is that I'm supposed to do, who I am, and I refused to get a job. I just didn't want to go get a corporate 
separate job. What year I, was this? This was uh, 2009. So basically this summer, it's going to be 10 years that I've been in New York. And uh, so it was the inner torment that was still there for uh, a deep yearning for relief, for clarity, for direction, for purpose. I didn't know any of it. And I was seeking. So I was seeking with the Sufis. I was seeking, I was going into churches and praying. I was going to every person that I found, an artist and poets and business people and journalists. And I was just searching, searching for the way and for my work and for the purpose, the higher purpose. I wasn't allowed to work here actually because I didn't have a work permit. So eventually I applied. You only had three months on your... I had three months on my... Exactly. Mm -hmm. So then after that, I went back to Germany. I realized, no, I need to, I belong in New York. So I applied for an internship. I got an internship at at an animation company called Flickr Lab, and they were so kind to have hire me, the, the founder, Harold Moss. He hired me, or he, he gave me the internship. A social anthropologist. Uh, yeah, anima- animation I think he just that. had a thing for Persians. And I was, at that time, was the Iranian um, uprisings. So it was 2009, you know, we had this massive um, um, uprising against the elections where yeah. Ahmadinejad was voted yeah. again or they say that the election was rigged and all that. So I became part of that movement, which was called the Green Movement, and I came here to New York, and I basically just threw myself into the protests. Mm -hmm. I was outside the UN, I was inside the UN with Noam Chomsky at some point. I was, you know, hunger striking, God knows where. I was in Union Square, I was in Times Square, with all the Iranians that were chanting slogans. We were in front of Ahmadinejad's hotel. So I did that for a few months. And I think Harold Moss, the the founder of Flickr Lab, he he liked that, Mm -hmm. and he was, together with a Persian woman at that time and I think he wanted to support the activist in me and I appreciate that to this day. How did you discover Howard? I think through the per- yeah through the Persian community through the protests so all my good friends here in New York the, the Iranian ones I know from standing out on the streets and mm-hmm. trying to overthrow the Iranian regime with them basically <laughs> but um, so the internship eventually led me to getting an H1B visa with another friend and then I did that for a few years and then somebody else hired me again on an H1B visa so I basically the one thing I was doing was project managing and I was helping these entrepreneurs who had these very you know positive impact based social enterprises that they wanted to used to change the world or to make the world a better place. So I was basically hired by these kind of people to help them manage their lives and their projects. After doing this for a couple of people, uh, somebody said to me, you know, you're one of the people that hired me said, you you could be a really good coach. You know, you're really actually a coach. I don't know about project managing, but you, you should try coaching. You're helping me so much. Why don't you meet my business coach from Paris? And then he can tell you whether or not this is an interesting path. I met the business coach from Paris. He listened to me for half an hour, asked me a couple of questions. And then at the end of that, he said, you would make an amazing coach. In fact, I will refer one of my clients to you. And why don't you just start? And that's how I got started with coaching. It was out of necessity partly and partly because it's what I was doing with others and it was what I was doing with me. I have a whole pile, maybe 20, 30 moleskin journals where I've documented my own process, my thoughts, my emotions, my journal. I journal, but I do, I basically take inventory of my inner life and Uh my my mind. And I've done this since my mid-twenties. You're really following a thread and really helping me make sense of from Life. this started in Kerala or before yeah, Kerala? Yeah, in Kerala I was, I was doing this. It's not journaling in the sense of like, it's, a, it's not a diary, it's really... It's an exploration. It's an exploration. An inner, inner exploration. Yeah, examining of, mm-hmm. of the mind and thoughts and life. That's an inner curiosity. 
But you also had a, this period, must have been a time where your, your, just your curiosity must have been on fire by meeting such a diverse range of people and being able to just soak up New York. Absolutely. I went knocking on Patti Smith's door. Can you imagine? <laughs> Did she answer? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I lived, I happened to find an apartment to, uh, like two blocks away from her and I only later found out. And mm. talk about serendipity, I went to the Bowery Electric one night for a Persian rock concert. I meet Lenny Kay, who is Patti Smith's guitarist. I'm wearing this green ribbon around my wrist, which was for the yeah. Green Movement. He goes, hey, is this for the Green Movement? I'm like, yeah, how do you know? He's like, yeah, because I'm, I stand in solidarity with you, right? Because they're very, mm. they're activists too and they're people who love and value peace and promote humanity and peace. So Lenny Kay became my friend. And oh my goodness. He from drove just going me to the barrier. I love it. From going to the barrier. Like my life has been just a series of uh -huh. these kind of things. And uh, he drove me around and took me to all the bars in New York where the Beats and Jimi Hendrix and Patti mm -hmm. Smith and Bob Dylan and all of them would go and write and read and compose. And so he became a friend. Mm -hmm. And eventually I moved onto King Street. And then he let me know that Patti actually lives two blocks down on McDougal. So I... Um, wrote a bunch of poems and uh, Sufi poems for her and took a beautiful rock that I had from India when I went there first time. And I went knocking on her door, trembling, and she opened the door. And so you went, so it wasn't even uh, Lenny Kay that introduced you no, to her? No, so she just told own. me, yeah, I just got up one day and I said, today's the day I have to go. I want her blessings and I want, I just have to meet her. She's the reason I'm here. What I need something. Well, she opened the door, was a bit taken because you know she her kids live in the building and she was a bit sort of unsure what but did you say to her i said i'm your neighbor and i really would love to talk to you i have something for you and she sure. said okay wait here i'll be right back she closed the door went in so i'm standing there so awkward and i'm thinking god is she gonna know, come back is she gonna even <laughs> come back or is this just you know to get rid of me and so she came back and she said hey let's sit down here on the stair yeah. stairs so we sat on the stairs and i was shaking and i remember giving her this poems that I had written for her and this rock and she saw my hands trembling and then she took the rock and she said this is for me and I said yes and she said wow I'm so grateful let's meditate together so we both sat there in silence and she held this rock <laughs> I can't believe you. this is incredible <laughs> yeah and we meditated together and she, I told her my story and mm -hmm. she gave me some really powerful words of advice mm -hmm. she said you know we, we all go through process of death and rebirth and every now and then we have to really learn to shed our skin mm -hmm. and that's the process of becoming a creative a creative person you have to be willing to die. And then she said, wait here, I'm going to get something for you. So she went in and she came back with this beautiful blouse that someone made her, actually a designer called Anne de Meester. And she, it's this flowy black thing. And at that time I was doing the Sufi whirling, mm -hmm. which I told her. And she brought it and said, this is yours. I want you to wear this. This was made for me to wear on stage, but this is now for you. You can wear it when you dance. Oh, wonderful. So she gave me that. Okay, so, wow, yeah, uh, where did we take this? I mean, Pat, Patty Smith, <laughs> the coaching, you were told you're an amazing coach. So I started my practice. But did you take any training or did you start naturally coaching people? I started naturally your, coaching, mm. yeah. So I, I, I would say my, my master's in social anthropology, then my... At that point, I had already five years of mm. practicing within the Indian. The well, it's real time. Exactly. Yeah, development. Yeah. And then I started actually studying contemplative science here in New York at the mm. Nalanda Institute for Contemplative Science. So right after I started my coaching the, practice, Nalanda. Nalanda. So instead of going and pursuing mm. the traditional route of 
getting a t coaching certificate. Mm -hmm. I said, look, I'm already good at empathy. I've suffered enough to understand mm -hmm. a little bit about that. And I'm a relatively good listener. And for some reason, I can access these states of clarity and inspiration. Mm -hmm. So why do I need to go learn more of that? Let me go study something else that actually becomes somewhat of a methodology. So I went and studied contemplative science and contemplative psychotherapy at the Nalanda Institute. And they're basically, so what you're dealing with with contemplative science, it is the coming together of Buddhist philosophy, mm -hmm. Buddhist psychology and practice. And, and, Western, and Western methodologies of, yeah, exactly, neuroscience, of neuroscience, psychology, um, psychotherapy and evolutionary biology and all of that. I don't know if I heard you talk about it, but I heard somewhere that there's also elements of quantum physics. Absolutely. There's this, this incredible dance between mm. Buddhist philosophy and quantum physics. Mm. physics. Can you yeah. just talk a bit about that? Gosh, I really, <laughs> it's such a difficult one. And funny enough, the Dalai Lama himself personally, mm. not once, but several times told me I need to understand and teach quantum physics uh, to explain the Buddhist... Um, you definitely need to meet Merit Murray. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've heard about her, actually. Yeah, I know of her. Both of them examine the nature of, of reality, I would say. You know, uh -huh. quantum physics deals with the nature of the material universe. Yeah. And um, in Buddhist philosophy, you're dealing with an examination of, of the true nature of reality, specifically the, the non-material. You know, we're really trying to understand what's there beyond the sensory level mm -hmm. perception and world. And I think the one thing that they say in common is that there is no objective reality, independent yeah. of a subjective perspective. So the, the role of the consciousness that is perceiving that object of mm -hmm. perception is more significant than one likes to admit. So the act of perception or observation changes the nature of what is being perceived. So therefore, we can say that there is no objective reality independent of the subjective. Mm -hmm. So then what does that imply about our world? Is there even a world? Is the world the way that yeah. we see it, really? Or are we actually, in some sense, video, game. video gaming <laughs> yeah. it into existence? So that leads to a lot of questions. And that's where a beautiful dialogue has come into into existence between scholars, Buddhist scholars and Western scientists mm -hmm. pioneered by the Dalai Lama called the Mind and Life Institute that was mm -hmm. formed together with a neuroscientist. Yeah. Neuroscientist called Francesco Varela mm -hmm. and His Holiness and a group of other scientists. And so there's these annual gatherings where these scholars and scientists, researchers come and have these incredible conversations with the Dalai Lama. And it's all of that with the intention to use science and contemplation to help humanity flourish. Mm. Like, why are we doing all, of the, all the experiments and the scientific inquiry for what? What if we were to direct all of that to solving the problem of human suffering? I'm going to come back to that. Okay. So you have this guiding principle and neural beings, which is... Championing? Yes, the curious and the kind. <laughs> exactly. We love curiosity and um, believe there's some latent power in curiosity. I'd like you to talk about the, why you picked curiosity and the kind, mm. the two, the combination. What's that power when you bring those two characteristics together? Nice. I appreciate you asking because not many people ask mm. what that means. Curiosity um, is alluding to the inquisitive nature of, of the mind. Mm -hmm. The, 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 the act of challenging our habitual way of perceiving the world, of perceiving ourselves, mm. our default narratives. So curiosity to, to ask, is this really it? Or is there more? What so else is to possible? The, to your point about objective reality exactly. and subjective. Yeah, Even totally. regarding which is our habit of objectification, mm -hmm. we have this habit to say, well, you're a man and you're, this is a glass and this is my life. And what are all these concepts? First of all, we're dealing with a bunch of linguistic designations. Mm. 
you know, a microphone is not a microphone. It's this object that we call, we designate the label microphone on it. And then on the basis of consensus, we all agree it's a microphone and then we buy into it. It's not a microphone. It's a bar bunch of assembled parts that actually, if we were to continue, you know, disassembling, we will get to atoms and then subatomic particles. And even those we can continue dividing. Mm -hmm. So what's really there other than a bunch of parts, a bunch of procedures that led to this microphone coming into existence, like the materials and the processes of whatever people bringing it and making it and everything. And then we call it that. We call it a microphone, which has a certain function. But there's no microphone. But who really goes around and does that kind of analysis on things, let alone on ourselves? ourselves. So I was about to say, on ourselves, and what is the past, what is the present, and what is the future, right. which is in a constant state of flux. Exactly. Is but there yet our, our perceived reality of our lives and who we are and where we're going is not really driven by that innate sense of curiosity and no, questioning. No, we, we are creatures of comfort mm -hmm. and habit and we just sort of fall into these really sort of hypnotized states of just taking things the way that our basic sensory perception picks up on them. Like mm -hmm. we hear, we smell, we taste and we all of the rest and that's it. How many of us really challenge our senses and go beyond senses? Are we just merely a bunch of neurons firing and wiring in response to sensory stimulation and mm -hmm. thoughts? Is that it? Where does love fit into this? Love opens the door to all of this. Yeah. So I think well, that, that's what I mean, the concept. I mean, it's a concept that we talk, it's a word that we use, it's yeah. in our consciousness all the time. And yet, when you were talking about the, the purpose um, behind underpinning the, the Mind Life Institute and this inquiry to look at if, what if we use it for the benefit of humanity mm -hmm. and society, and the thing that binds us all together. I mean, if we think about everything comes down to arguably a binary good and evil um love and whatever the opposite of wave love. and particle <laughs> yeah that type of thing so you know love is a i think everyone would agree a, a unifying principle that everyone regardless of where they live and how they feel and who they are and their backgrounds race creed and color love is a, a unifying principle mm -hmm. so where does that where does that fit in relation to when you talk about the curious and the kind mm -hmm. i think there's a um a persian poet um Rumi, mm -hmm. that has uh, from a poem uh, which is your, it says, your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that mm -hmm. you have built against it. Yes. And I think that's interesting that we are, when you talk about that sense of reality and you put it through the prism of love, if love is a, a universal higher order Thing that binds us all together yet we taking what Rumi says that we have these barriers against it life arguably is about uh, the pursuit or the act of breaking down those barriers mm -hmm. yeah or, or am I just talking nonsense no you're not I think, <laughs> I mean, I yeah I, I think life is probably not inherently about that but we if we make life about that about identifying the barriers and breaking them down that mm -hmm. would be a really meaningful life and that actually is what i meant by curious and kind yeah. so the kind part alludes to the people whose who whose hearts have the capacity to feel compassion who are not only concerned about their own welfare and their own opti um, optimizing their own lives but really are thinking that with my precious life let me let me do something to alleviate suffering let me do something to bring a little bit of peace a little bit of goodness into this world so that's the kind of person that i love to work with curiosity of course as a yeah. basis without that you're dealing with a stagnant mm -hmm. and fixed mindset which is not going to go anywhere anyway mm -hmm. and then the curiosity uh, the kindness part is about somebody who really has the compassion in them to 
um, make this about benefiting others too. So bringing themselves up to an optimum to then be able to help others. And that's where love comes in. The definition of love from the Buddhist perspective, and I think universally speaking, really is wanting the happiness and the welfare of the other. Mm -hmm. So there's an element of selflessness in love. I think to really love someone or something, you need to kind of transcend your own needs and your own grasping at your own self to some extent, really making it about the other. I'm just thinking about some of your clients. I and mean, we talk about politicians and things. They really yeah. do need a lot of help. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I've dealt with many types of people who have not really known, ever known what love is. Mm -hmm. I mean, high-level people, world-influencing people who don't know what love is, who've never felt it really. It's interesting. I was at um, uh, an event this week where we were talking about mental wellness and moving the narrative away from mental illness to mental well-being and how do we actually take awareness into action and what are the things we have to do. And you're right at the heart of doing pretty radical thinking mm -hmm. in terms of with this contemplative science mm -hmm. of how to reorientate the world um, psyche collectively through individuals having an impact that can then have a, a synergistic and a ripple, a, a, let's call it the butterfly effect, maybe mm -hmm. on society. Mm -hmm. So, if we see, if we go back to the idea that the world is just one big battle of forces of negative energy versus positive energy, rather, let's use those terms, mm -hmm. you're right out there at the nose cone at the forefront of, of positive driving energy. One of, I just like to just reflect on a little bit about, I read a book last year by uh, Dr. Robert Lusick uh, called Hack Hacking the American Mind. And, you know, I look back at my time in the advertising industry and we created truth-based campaigns to persuade people to behave and change their behavior, to be happy. Mm -hmm. You're only one purchase away from happiness, but the reality is you can't purchase happiness. What right. you can purchase, obviously, is pleasure, yes. which everyone becomes addicted to, which is a dopamine Exactly. trigger yeah. and if we think about us in, in relation to those uh, those emotions that we're trying to trigger through our behaviors you know the, 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 the pleasure is short-lived it's visceral it's all about taking things it's all achieved through substances whereas happiness is long-lived ethereal giving based and it's not about substances mm -hmm. yet one is driven by dopamine the other is driven by drive serotonin mm -hmm. when serotonin is obviously the, the route to happiness exactly. so where does that type of uh, when you start to sort of look at it, break it down into the neurological mm. element, does that touch your practice at all? Definitely, yeah. And in terms of the way you coach people in their behaviors? Yes, yeah, so under a basic understanding of how the mind and brain system work. And here I'm, you know, I'm not in any way um, suggesting that the, the mind is the brain. Mm -hmm. uh, I do believe that there's a that they are not necessarily the same thing, but they work in relationship with one another. Um, well, we could get into a discussion about the mind being the whole body and where yeah, the gut including sits. including the body. The mind could be relationships. The mind could be everything, uh, anything. It could be much more spacious. And there's a whole other Eastern interpretation of the mind. Mm -hmm. There's the Western, which is what cognitive faculties, thinking and all of that. Mm -hmm processing of information but in the eastern in, in the eastern worldview the mind is is this is what we would call wisdom is what mm. we would call deeper knowing yeah. intuition it's clarity it's luminous it's it's wisdom itself the true nature of mind the stuff that we're in the west talking about is just referred to as mental content mm -hmm. yeah it's <laughs> <laughs> junk mm -hmm. really mostly there's a lot of that isn't there there's a lot of that <laughs> an but, increasingly amount <laughs> yes but yeah, um, definitely neuroscience is something I'm interested in. Neuropsychology is something I'm interested in because the brain is plastic. That gives us so much hope, meaning that if you know that if we learn to understand that our actions of body, of speech, of mind, yield 
you know, results, you'll produce results. And these results are, you know, as the law of karma or causality um, posits, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. So every thought we have, every word we utter, every action we take, not only leaves behind structural and functional different changes in our brain, it also imprints, uh, you know, it, it creates the karma of then having to, you know, and this maybe take, takes a stretch of imagination or a leap of faith to believe in the law of karma or cause and effect. But our actions then ultimately become our reality in some future moment. Mm. That's at least the Eastern worldview, is that none of your actions just kind of di dissipates. Mm -hmm. Every action you take, your three faculties of action, are what produce your world, your subjective experience of the world. And then obviously the, the effect it has on the world around you, and therefore Definitely. the circumstances and the events that then transpire as a result of that. Exactly. Which then dovetails nicely back into serendipity, so. Yeah. Can you talk about how you, I'd just like to know, I mean, I'm sure listeners would as well, where did Dalai Lama come into your life? <laughs> That's a good question, because he is really kind of my, the, you know, the sun in the center of mm. my the galaxy. I mean, um, don't tell me Patty Smith introduced you. Uh, no, but you know, funny enough, uh, actually on a very significant day when I was initiated into particular Buddhist teaching, Patty Smith and Dalai Lama were on stage at Glastonbury mm. together. Did you, did you know that? First birthday, I, singing Happy Birthday? I, I did actually, I did yeah, know that, yeah. yeah. That was, I was thinking that now my two worlds are colliding in the most unusual way. But you way. were there. You were I wish. No, I no. was in the Buddhist, yeah. some, some other thing. Uh, the Dalai Lama came into my life uh, several times. Uh, so as a young girl, I, I was uh, in an airplane with my father flying back from the U.S., I think, to Germany. And the, His Holiness Dalai Lama was in the airplane. Then. <laughs> what are the chances of that? Oh, I've had a several airplane situations with him serendipitous mm. ones and uh, then in 2007 is when i first attended one of his teachings in hamburg but he was like a little speck in the horizon so i didn't hear nor understand anything he was saying but it happened that that very day i um a relationship that i was in romantic relationship dissolved very peacefully the same day so i thought well there, there's something very interesting we've been trying to break up for a year and then we go see the dilemma in the evening we just part <laughs> interesting it was almost like a glue was just dissolved between us. Uh, then I saw him again here in, in, in New York. And then the, around that time, I thought, well, there's this is not normal. There's something that draws me to him. It's almost like a hook that hooked me. And, um, you know, talk about <laughs> my addictions in the past. Here I am feeling so uh, drawn to this human being that every time I would, my eyes would glance, take a glance of him, my entire state would change. There, I mean, talk about you know neurochemical yeah. changes that really alter your your state. Um, this would happen when I was in his presence, and I would feel a sense of clarity and elation and incredible love. And so I thought, wow, this is interesting. Let me continue seeing him. So then I would make it a make it a priority to find out whenever he's in in the U.S. I would go and see him. And then after a while, I just all what did he say? What did he say when you explained this to him? Uh, I didn't explain necessarily the whole story, but I, I mean, I talked to him a few times. Um, you know, honestly, when you're in the presence of him and you talk to him, you feel like you are the only person in the world to him. He gives you his undivided attention and a most beautifully loving look in his face. And he's fully present with you. He's not thinking about himself. Actually, I have a very interesting moment. I was in the airplane. Um, the story you read, actually. Yeah, I read it on your blog. Yeah, it's incredible. Exactly. <laughs> and I, you know, a flight that I was going to take got canceled. So then I was sent back to my hostel in the, the hotel in the top of the mountain. So again, I come back the next day. I'm kind of annoyed and 
sleep deprived and I missed my f connecting flight this, to New York. This was from India. This was from India, from Dharamsala. I was mm. flying to Delhi and then Delhi to New York. So my whole thing got just, you know, my whole plan just fell apart. So the next day I go back to the airport to take the flight that I was put on instead of the one that was canceled. And I find out that I'm in the same little propeller airplane with his only instead. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there behind him. And then at some point, I decide to go up and say hi. And the mom and he's deeply immersed in prayer. So he has his prayer beads and he's reciting a mantra. His eyes are closed. I just go over and the moment I appear in front of him, he opens his eyes. And you know how, you know, in my own case, like if someone comes to talk to me, there's a moment where I have this sense of, okay, there's somebody here in front of me who is going to t talk to me. And there's a processing, there's a moment of processing, okay, I'm going to have to engage in conversation. And there's a sense of self and other. He opened his eyes and instantaneously his hand grabbed my hand he pulled me in and his eyes opened and he started to talk to me there i wow. did not witness a moment where he processed that i a woman am in front of him he has to you know undergo a certain action you didn't even get there's none of it it was just in, it was spontaneous love in action mm. i don't know how else uh, to explain this to you but it was something i actually saw and this is after 30 times or more of seeing him still i'm picking up on these cues where which makes me realize that you know if you put in the practice we all have the capacity to develop universal compassion we all have the capacity to develop kindness and generosity and patience and mindfulness these are all skills and and also i think the the term i think is power it's a different type of power than people strive for oh, yeah. in the world, in the phys this physical world. It's, uh, it's even deeper than an emotional power. It's, uh, you want to maybe use the word spiritual. Oh, this is true power. This is true power. Uh, it's power that's not, not forceful. It's power that's aligned with reality. It's the power that's tr in, 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 in integrity with the way things are. And it transcends the ego self, the limited self. I'd like your perspective on, I mean, obviously you're working to improve the, the health and uh, holistic wealth, let's say, mm -hmm. of society and people. Herbert Simon uh, had a quote, which is that the wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. Mm -hmm. Can you just give me your, your perspective on the, the fragmentation of attention, the fragmentation of ourself mm -hmm. as well, that's happening through the impact of social media and technology? Mm, yeah, yeah, I think this is really dangerous. Uh, we're already so fragmentable, mm -hmm. given that you know we're we're fragile and we're subject to little traumatic experiences from early from the moment we're born. So already the fragmentation is something to deal with, and now it's further amplified by the reality of you know exponential technologies and our addictions to devices and then social media personality versus real life mm -hmm. personalities. It's a lot, a lot of fragmentation. I would say you know fragmentation of our attention is a particularly dangerous one because you know if you look at also research the less control we have over our attention the more susceptible we are to depression mm. and anxiety yeah. so the more somebody is able to regulate their attention the more likely they'll be able to you know regulate their emotions uh, direct their actions towards wholeness and health and integration so you just are somebody who's more in control of your life if you have a control over your attention. Is this, uh, do you find this a challenge when you're, when you're coaching with clients, of helping them 
change their behaviors. Definitely, yeah. And in my own life too, you know, I have an Instagram account and I have a Facebook account and I have friends who text me on WhatsApp every three minutes and I have many <laughs> things that my brain and my mind are drawn to on a moment-to-moment basis. I have senses that want to taste delicious matcha lattes that I'm now <laughs> newly addicted to. A little to. bit of fish. A little bit of fish uh, <laughs> and all the rest. So it's hard. It's hard. You have to be really deliberate and really clear. And you have to honestly do it on a daily basis. Ha- we need to have practices. Mm-hmm. We need to have this integrated into our lives to well, learn. What was it, Josh? Uh, you'd like him as well. I'm not a guest. Uh, Josh Holland, who's um, uh, just come off a two-year tour with Roger Waters um, oh, as gosh. personal fitness coach. And Josh, I love Roger Josh, Waters, by the way. Josh is, um, well, he's still, he, he coaches him and he coaches um uh, Oscar Isaacs and uh, and Madonna. He is Buddhist in his, his mindset, really? the way he was brought up. Yeah, he's a fascinating character. I tried to have a little conversation about Buddhism with Roger Waters. It didn't go anywhere. He might have a different perspective now oh, after good. spending two years with Josh. Oh, I'm happy to hear that. Okay. Yeah, so but Josh has had a line, which is, if you want to change your body and mind, you have to change what you do all of the time. Yeah. And then he has a complete, that's my shortened version of it. Exactly. I mean, even going back to just looking at Robert Lussig and his, the, the whole happiness um, and serotonin thing of, he, I think he has the things he talks about, the four, four C's that are essential for creating and driving happiness, which he calls connection, face-to-face, eye-to-eye connection, mm-hmm. which gives you empathy and gives you reward, mm-hmm. not the non-visual Facebook, Instagram mm-hmm. connection, which gives you variable reward and triggers dopamine. The importance of contribution, of giving, putting yourself outside yourself and mm-hmm. giving back. Um, being able to cope, which is getting more sleep, getting having mindfulness and exercise, which is obviously at the core of what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he talks all about cooking. Mm-hmm. So actually what you're putting in your body and actually the physical act of cooking yourself oh, wow. for yourself and not having fast food, all these things trigger up and up to happiness. And it, and it aligns beautifully with what, the way that Josh talks as well. So I think there's these patterns, but it's, it is hard. I mean, you, we all, I mean, we rely on, on social media, even just for this podcast, just to tell people about it. Yeah. And it is very hard to not to get drawn into that social media vortex that, that sucks you in with the, the addiction to the likes and the followers and all that. How do you manage that yourself? <laughs> it's not easy because, yes, uh, the addiction is real. And if you repeat something over and over again, it becomes sort of, you know, it, uh, it starts to develop a momentum, mm. you know. Um, how to regulate that? Uh, to Really, that's what mindfulness is mm. designed for, is designed for us to... Um, be aware of our actions and understand the consequences of our actions to restrain unwholesome negative actions or habits, right? So mm-hmm. if you're not aware in the moment, you're not going to be able to identify what is unwholesome and you're not definitely not going to be able to restrain it. And then at the same time, to use the present moment to be really deliberate about what actions you do want to take and mm-hmm. engage in. So really, without mindfulness or awareness, I think um, it becomes almost impossible to regulate our actions, our attention and all of that. So you must be very optimistic um, looking at, um, optimistic with the direction that society is taking with the upsurge in interest in mindfulness practice and um, and I know I'm using the word mindfulness in a very broad sense but there's so much in the, in the cultural zeitgeist about, and maybe it's nature, maybe nature is telling us and that this is needed yeah. is to counteract the, the negative energies of things that are happening around us. Yeah. And it does seem to be happening at a time when the world is being pulled apart mm-hmm. and torn apart by 
identity politics, the polarization of, of communities, not just here and even presumably and looking at what's happening in Iran in yeah. your own your own country. Yeah. How do you reconcile that and remain optimistic about the future when you see so much negative energy that's potentially mm-hmm. tearing society and our world apart? Oh, how to remain optimistic in the light of that? How do you advise your clients? How do you remain optimistic and positive yourself? Do you screen out news? Do you avoid mm-hmm. reading social media? What What are your behaviors, apart from just the mindfulness practice in, its, in itself? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, we have a negativity bias mm. in general, you know, individually speaking, but then also collectively speaking. We are wired from an evolutionary perspective to pick up on negative information because it's just much more critical for our survival to mm. be aware of what's potentially threatening and harmful. So, I mean, look at the news. That's just a, it's like a blown up exaggeration of our negativity bias. So I would say just having an awareness of that. I mean, take yourself, for example. You know, you are probably much more likely to retain negative information than you're positive, mm-hmm. as am I. You know, we just hold on to that more. We don't necessarily, by default, uh, gravitate to, oh my God, look at how beautiful everything is and how good my life is and how grateful I am for all the myriad things in my world. We tend to look at what's missing and what's lacking and what's, what we can criticize and what's not good enough about ourselves and our lives. So that's sort of our habit. Mm-hmm. So having, a, I think, a sobriety around that, that we individually and collectively do tend to see the negative more than we see the positive. That's one thing. Then we have to counteract that habit to start to see what's right and what's good. Obviously, we don't have media that tells us of all the good things and of all the successes and victories and accomplishments and necessarily. I mean, there are some very alternative media agencies, perhaps, but it's not our default, you know, media reality. So I think we have to, on an individual level, put it into practice. That's why gratitude practice is not to be underestimated. That's why to rewire the brain from a negativity bias to much more of a positive default state, mm-hmm. it, it requires you to you know, take in and absorb and internalize positive information constantly. Meaning you really, when you do something good, you experience something positive, you have to sit there and really hold it and feel it in uh-huh. your body for a while. I've, I've heard someone talk about the importance of gratitude the times of day when you're you're thinking about having a gratitude practice is more powerful before you go to sleep at night than then first thing in the morning yeah, is that imagine. true yeah, i can imagine because then you have another seven eight hours uh, where your you know psyche or your subconscious mind residual does effect. yeah residual yeah. effect for sure you make your sleep you practice you make your sleep a you know part of your practice mm. so i would say you know first of all let's just look at the filter through which we're looking at our world you know we can see the world is disintegrating and falling apart which i'm sure it is in so many ways but also there are so many positive things that are emerging and changing so okay but not to say that i'm in any way bypassing the reality yeah. of, of the dysfunction and the suffering in the world in fact the very basis for transforming it is a very very realistic look at what's not working mm-hmm. we have to be willing and courageous enough to see the dysfunction not just in the world outside at the level of politics and economics and society and culture and also so forth but also internally to see what is dysfunctional in ourselves where are we failing? Where are we short? Um, what is it? Um, sabotaging mm-hmm. ourselves, basically, yeah. and really look at it. We try and have a, a diverse range of people on the show. Recently, if you look at it, there's been quite a few guys. I've seen you talk about the neurological uh, functioning of women's minds versus the male mind. Brains. The brains, yes. Brain, not mind. <laughs> Damn! <laughs> Got to change that language, Mark. 
But uh, let's just talk broadly. What are your feelings about the women's movement, not just in the US, but advances being made around the world and the fact that we do need society? If we're looking, going, talking broadly about the, the arc in, the, in terms of that forces that we're moving between negative and positive, we are definitely in need of more feminine characteristics mm-hmm. in our world, whether it is encouraging men yeah. to exhibit them mm-hmm. or whether it be through the involvement and the elevation of women in industry, in politics, mm-hmm. in education, it's an imperative for us to have a healthier functioning world. Mm-hmm. What's your view just around that, that whole uh, that journey that we're on? Yes, I would agree. And the challenges that we still face. Yeah, I actually like to re- reference the work of Ian McGilchrist. Oh yeah, he's British, you know yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly, he's yeah. British. And he wrote a book called The Master and the Emissary, where he basically... lean in. <laughs> lean in, <laughs> oh, yeah. which is sort of mm. totally against... Let's not go down there. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, Master and the Emissary, mm-hmm. where he basically says that, you know, our Western world is directly a reflection of our left centricism, left brain, left hemisphere function, you know, is such that it, it, it is designed to essentially process the world in a very different way, in a much more linear, fragmented, you know, um, process-driven way, whereas the right right hemisphere's function is to process the world and information in a much more integrated, wholesome, and all the rest, you know? So he says that, you know, over 70% of our world operates from its left-centric perspective, and the right is sort of, you know, just kind of, is just dangling along. But really what we need to do is to have the right be the master, Imagine the feminine attributes, what we ascribe to the feminine, those attributes of of seeing the whole, of the bigger picture, of community, of inclusivity, of intuition, of, uh, you know, all of that Mm -hmm. feeling, being at the forefront. And then the the emissary, the Mm -hmm. one who gets shit done, Mm -hmm. basically, is the left brain. Because that's what the left brain is good for. The left brain is good for getting the work done. But the right brain is the part is the, the, the part of the brain that has the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. But we miss the bigger picture. That's why we're so unaware of our actions currently. That's why we live in a fragmented world where we're completely unaware of the impact that our actions have. It's a good job you moved away from being a project manager because that was all very much on the, yes. on the left brain. Yes, I, would have, I was failing miserably. Yeah. I didn't make any money in that job, actually. I was charming and nice. Everyone liked me, mm-hmm. but I made no money. That's interesting. Yeah. What do you think that takes us then from our the imperative for educators and for education to change to and I'm not just talking education in terms of the curriculum but I'm talking in terms of parents and the way we bring up children and the social conventions mm-hmm. well I mean um, I'm not sure you know but uh, Emory University in collaboration with His Holiness the Dalai Lama launched the sea learning curriculum just mm-hmm. I was there in Delhi at the launch of that just uh, in April and the C learning curriculum, basically C learn C stands for social, emotional, and ethical learning, is a curriculum for elementary school and middle school at the moment, and it basically teaches children the skills of self-regulation mm-hmm. of all the things that we don't learn, so that when they become adults, they can navigate the ever-increasing complexity of our fragmented world in a Mm. constructive way. So basically, they learn attention regulation, emotion regulation. They learn the skills of interpersonal relationships, empathy, compassion. They learn mindfulness. They learn compassion. compassion. They develop their capacity for compassion. Um, So this is a curriculum that helps little human beings learn to 
become integrated and mm. live wholesome lives so that they can make informed decisions. Not like me when I was 17, deciding to just go study marketing, advertising, because, you know, what else am I going to do? And feeling like a bubble. Instead, hopefully, you know, the new generation will have much more clarity and much more sense of direction in making decisions and also in how they then commit to careers. Yeah, that's fascinating. I didn't know about that school. And we'll put that in the show notes so as well. So it's a curriculum, it's, huh? a, it's Yeah, and that's needed. I, mean, I was at a, an event at Google last week, and it was called um, Humanity and AI. Mm-hmm. And it was really just bringing together both head of cloud uh, and AI at Google with people who are uh, poets, um, thinkers, writers, musicians mm. all talking about the importance for humanity to change the way we identify uh, consider what we are what we will do and what we want to be mm-hmm. as a collective because ai can outthink us it can outreason us and it can out produce us mm-hmm. so we have to have a reimagining of that and at the heart of it is the way that we arm our children to work collectively to bring together the 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 creative curious and the spirit of what true humanity is mm-hmm. to reach its full potential because the potential is under existential threat through yeah. what's happening with AI so I think that's really interesting and encouraging to hear and I'll probably share that with some other people as well as we were talking last week about you know what's happening in the in the curriculum and with schools mm-hmm. see learning so, so that's I have gr- the curriculum here that's great well maybe yeah love to get a copy of that mm-hmm. I'm conscious of time Nelson Mandela had a uh, a quote which is there is no passion to be found in playing small in settling for a life that is less than the one you're capable of living mm-hmm. I think what you're doing is very much well leaving aside your for early years <laughs> <laughs> of not settling and you talk I've, I've read something where you talk about potential and possibility and I think this is what you seem to be doing with your with neural beings is living that life so I just um like you to reflect on this question because we're called the impossible network and uh, about you don't seem to have any barriers self-limiting beliefs or anything in terms of what you're setting out to do you you've you i mean serendipity is clearly a um a partner to you in life <laughs> your curiosity is is fulfilling and fueling that serendipity the way that we we believe it does where do you see yourself going with neural beings where do you project yourself being 10 years from now mm-hmm. with it if we look at that that the fact that you're not settling that you have this belief in possibility and potential mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one thing I do want to address is I do have self-limiting beliefs, Mm. but I challenge them. Mm -hmm. I do have them. I have them on a daily basis, but I have developed the mindfulness Mm. or the vigilance of mind to be able to identify them when they come up. Because when they're not identified at the root and severed at the root, they really sabotage. I mean, and it's, wouldn't it be so tragic if, you know, because of self-limiting beliefs, you wouldn't end up doing what you can do and you wouldn't, end up benefiting the world the way you could benefit. So that said, um, what is my vision for neural beings in 10 years? I mean, I can be really honest with you. Um, the reality is, you know, people like His Holiness the Dalai Lama are rare. Mm. His Holiness is 83 and going on to 84 soon. And soon we're not going to have him in the world. I mean, hopefully he lives for another, you know, 10 years mm-hmm. or something. But so we need more. Mm-hmm. We need more we need more beings who have committed their whole life to serving in the most authentic way, in the most informed, wise way. 
you know, not just activists who are there to take down, you know, dysfunctional systems, but really people who've done the work in sel inside themselves first, mm -hmm. who are coming at it from a place of, you know, wisdom and kindness and compassion. So I would like to help as many people who I identify having the potential to become mini Dalai Lamas, mm -hmm. to become mini Dalai Lamas. I would like to be the person who can help them really flourish and really get rid of whatever limiting beliefs they have so that they can change the system. So that's my passion and my commitment is to serve those and support those who really want to make a difference and know that they have to start with themselves and that's where i come in and help them do that and then in my own right you know i i, I my greatest wish is to be you know a little spark of his holiness's light mm -hmm. a little tiny flicker a little you know piece of his, his torch if i can bring a me tiny fragment of that kindness of that love of that wisdom into the world then i fulfilled my purpose with myself and with neural beings let's do some quick fire questions what principles do you stand by? Integrity, truth, kindness, authenticity. Lovely. Four that everyone should stand by. What hard choices have you had to make that were tough at the time but turned out to be the right decision? Um, <laughs> letting go of relationships that were beautiful and loving and cozy and comfortable for the sake of growth mm -hmm. and for the sake of remaining true to what I am and my path. Uh, I had to make the sacrifices of not pursuing career paths that promised a lot of money and a lot of security in order to s to do what I am really here to do and to do that which I love to do. That's a, just a good point. It makes me think of something else. Where did you, where do you think it suddenly hit you when you realized your 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 purpose was, let's call it, in service of others? When did it hit me? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, there was no moment I was waiting for something to hit me on the head. It didn't hit me, but it was a gradual just a realization. Yeah, it was a gradual, yeah. exactly, gradual re realization, and it came from pursuing it. I mean, I was a, I was like a dog that had bitten into someone's ankle and was not letting go until mm -hmm. I got the answer. So it's not like it just fell into my lap. I worked for it. I looked under every rock. I turned. I opened every door. I went begging praying, writing, researching, interviewing people. I mean, until I got to it. Mm -hmm. So cause and effect works. Yeah. <laughs> you put in the causes, you will get effects. Where do you go to discover new ideas? Um, I dance. I um, study. I'm studying all the time, all the time, whether it's the contemplative practices or it's whatever else there is. Where do you, where do you go or what do you do when you need space to think? I met, tried to meditate. <laughs> You're not meant to be thinking then. That's the whole point, isn't it? <laughs> well, space to think. Uh, yeah. yeah. Think uh, depends on what you mean by think. Mm. Who are your influences and who are your inspirations? I mean, obviously, you've answered it. It's the Dalai Lama. Yeah. The Dalai but your mother as well. My mother. My mother is definitely, mm. wow, definitely an inspiration. She has brought out the best of me. Mm -hmm. um, Patty Smith is my inspiration. Ah, right. Yeah. Um, I would say those are some of my top I ones. Fine. I could keep I going, think, but no, you know. No, I think yeah. that's good. Yeah. Talk to me about your perspective on failure and, and, and maybe fear. My perspective on failure and fear. Yeah. fear. Uh, well, um, they can be stifling. They mm. can lead to inaction, but they can also be incredible allies. Mm -hmm. They can be um, reminders, uh, gentle, or sometimes not gentle reminders mm. for us to actually go further yeah 
and to take risks. What about fear itself? How do you deal with that? Because you're constantly in a in a space of evolution of ambiguity mm -hmm. with your journey. Oh yeah. So you've you've been open yeah. about your vulnerability that you still have you have your moments oh, yourself. Oh for sure, yeah. So how do you deal with that sense of that fear? Well, you notice it. Mm. So again, you need to have a level of awareness to be able to notice it, to see, to contemplate the consequences of allowing fear to take over. Yeah. You know, you just become really sober and clear about, okay, if I if I allow this fear to continue, mm -hmm. you know, um, inf informing me and my actions and my worldview, then I'm going to, you know, this is, this X, Y, Z is going to be the outcome. So, you know, just becoming really clear on the consequences and then making a conscious decision whether or not you're going to allow it to or not. Mm -hmm. So... We, I think it's always going to be there. It's going to come and go. Um, but how we respond to it and relate with it is really what matters. Okay. Yeah. Um, who's made you reevaluate and why? I would say um, <laughs> my uh, now best friend and um, partner at work, Mo Gaudat, who's mm -hmm. the author of Soul for Happy. Okay. And, um, you know, he is not only my one of my he's my best friend and also my mentor mm. he's definitely he gets me to reevaluate myself on a weekly basis probably so whatever you know fixed idea i have of myself it gets shattered on a regular basis yeah good and it's healthy it's very healthy okay <laughs> just making sure and um, we talked about technology and the the downside of it the, and the potential damage it can have how do you keep up with it well, you regulate your, you know, the, the your use and your relationship. Um, I would say, you know, emphasizing things that are uh, in our natural world to balance our use of technology and our obsession with it or addiction to it is really important. But I think again, awareness or mindfulness comes in handy, mm -hmm. so that we can know when we are, you know, perhaps overusing or overemphasizing our relationship with mm. technology. Mm. Do you find it important for your practice to stay up to date with latest evolution of technology? To some extent. I mean, on a very basic level, mm. yes, but I don't think my work is directly informed. It's not critical. By that, it's not critical, no. I mean, to be a, to, to know exactly, you know, if we're gonna be taken over by AI or not is helpful, but mm. otherwise, I don't think so. Okay, uh, getting to the end. Uh, the impossible question, what would your advice be to someone who's just about to graduate, study, uh, leave school, that's got a dream, a goal, a grand ambition, but it's been told, forget it, it's impossible? <laughs> I would say the nature of reality is open, fluid, and if you were to dig into quantum physics or a Buddhist you know, uh, philosophy or contemplative philosophy, mm -hmm. you would probably arrive at the realization that everything is possible. And understanding the role of the mind mm -hmm. and the power of the mind will help you realize that everything is possible. So look inside and look into your mind first and foremost before you believe somebody else's mm -hmm. jargon. And subjective reality. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Their subjective reality. What book would you like us to offer uh, listeners that make good comments in the comment section? I would say my, my best friend's book, Mogadad's book, Solve for Happy. Yeah. Yeah. I would say it's a, you know, it's a very, very, very good read. Well, we had two questions we're going to uh, add to it. One is, what's your karaoke song? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, it would probably be Pink Floyd. 
No, are you kidding? I thought it would be Patti Smith. Oh, Patti Smith. Horses, surely. Oh, no. horses. Yeah, horses would. That's an intense one to sing. Okay, if it to. was Pink Floyd, which track? And we'll pass it on to Roger. Um, at the moment, I like the tide is turning, which mm-hmm. is one of Roger Waters' yeah, songs, yeah. and I love the live version and that 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 he sang in Berlin with mm-hmm. the other singers. Did um, you go to his concerts last year? Yes, Here, yes. yeah, we were at two of them. Oh yeah, yeah me too. I went great. to like two, oh, three. Fantastic. Well, yeah. What's your what? We would say Netflix or Amazon. Any series you've seen recently, you'd say you have to watch this. Or movie. I watched uh, Above Us Only Sky with about John Lennon and Yoko Ono. And I discovered that actually Imagine, the album and the song, mm-hmm. the album is called Imagine too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of it was influenced by Yoko Ono. In fact, the lyrics for Imagine were mostly by Yoko Ono. Uh-huh. I didn't even know that. Talk about empowering the feminine. I mean, why was she not? you know credit credited More, for that yeah. but uh i watched that um gosh what else i loved uh going home a little netflix netflix documentary about ramdas very mm. beautiful okay and then i every now and then when my brain cannot function i watch chef's table and i just fall asleep in front of it so, wow. yeah Mm. Is it Ramadan just now? Yes, so let's not talk about food. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, final question. Who should we interview next? Well, I would say check out Miles Neal, Dr. Miles Neal. Mm. He was my teacher at the Nalanda Institute for Contemplative Science. Okay. He's very interesting, but I need to think about that yeah. longer. Well, you can come back to us with it, but yeah. we'll put Mr. Miles Neal, Dr. Dr. Miles Neal on the, on the list. Yeah, he's amazing. And um, I just have to wrap up. And I mean, it's hard. I've been mean, trying to think of the amazing and the wisdom you've imparted. <laughs> I acknowledge you really for, I think, just uh, the authentic and just the kindness that you exude. Hmm. Um, your eloquent expression of just the importance of compassion and the feminine, the importance of the feminine self, I think it really resonated with me. Your honest self-reflection on your journey and your openness to tell us about those darker moments, which is admirable that many people wouldn't be so open and to show that vulnerability. Your commitment to serve. I mean, we just have to applaud you and and thank you for being an inspiration to the rest of us who are trying to follow in your way towards positivity (laughs) in this quantum world that we don't really understand, (laughs) that merit still has to completely make me understand when we get together. Maybe we can have a little round table and yeah. get Josh in as well when we talk about Buddhism. And we've just been joined by one of our past guests, Dr. Courtney Renicky, uh, who we're going to go off and, and break Ramadan with. <laughs> so, so I have to say thank you very much. And thank you for the time you've spent oh, with us this afternoon. Thank you so That's much great. for every kind word you just said and uh, really all of it back to you as well because everything that I am and do is because of people like yourself who give me Mm. the opportunity to do it. Otherwise, I would be vibrating in space. There you go. In my own apartment (laughs) all day long. Yeah, and and spinning in (laughs) Patti Smith's black shirt that she gave you. Exactly. Have you got that? Can we get a photo? Can can we see it? Can we get a photo? Because we have to do team photo as well. Absolutely. Well, the other amazing thing about all of you said... Are we done? Are we done? Or do you want to make an observation, Elaine? The other interesting part that you've said is that you are um, always questioning your journey. Mm-hmm. So wherever you are, you're always going back. Is this the right journey? Do, uh, you mentioned something around um, finding your limits mm-hmm. and trying to fight for them. So it's, always, it's part of your journey to always be looking back and looking front and yeah. looking always, which is, mm-hmm. which is something, something everybody should be doing and some people are afraid to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So I applaud you for that Thank as well. You. Yeah, it's not easy. It's not exactly it doesn't make a comfortable life, but it makes a I, I hope I hope it makes an authentic or a successful life. Or like a more fulfilling life. Or more yeah. fulfilling, yeah. If you go and look back in time, I think it's more fulfilling yeah. to say I, I actually did think yes, about it. And exactly. I took the decisions because I was conscious of them. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well Thank you. Thank you so much for having Khodafez. me. Khodafez. <laughs> okay folks, that's it for this week. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcast player to listen and subscribe. If you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, visit theimpossiblenetwork.com or follow us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. This show is a Fabrica Collective production and is produced by Bettina McKelly and Elaine Castillo-Keller. For now, be curious, be creative and be open to serendipity. See you next time.